Welcome to Common Mouth Manchester, a podcast brought to you by Citico, the city centre management company for Manchester and Salford. I'm Vaughan Allen, I'm still coughing like a sea lion from Citico, and we're talk- back talking about restaurants. We're being hosted in the sunny northern quarter of the city by our friends at West Corner. It was actually sleeting and snowing earlier. So. Uh, it's been six months since our last review of the subject. There have been openings and closings and regular as clockwork, no recognition for the city from Monsieur Michelin. Though I noticed now we're, we're doing the Brexit thing, we have to say Monsieur, and, and Mrs Merkel is now Frau Merkel. You have to say it in the most anglais way as possible. I'm joined again by Tom Hetherington, founder of the Northern Restaurant and Bar Show, which is coming up soon, so he will doubtless plug that. The Northern Hospitality Awards and many others. Man about town, glossop loyalist and passionate dog walker. And uh, cornflakes expert, as cornflakes proved to us. Very much so. Alongside is Ruth Allen, editor of the excellent Manchester Wire website, writer for Manchester Confidential, writer of the Time Out Guide to the City, and reviewer of the city's restaurants for more than a few years. Also with a, an Instagram that will um, make you want food almost immediately. Um, and I'm, I'm going to try and get through the next half hour without mentioning five guys, which will be very rare for me. Okay, one down already. Uh, or Costa Coffee Machines, which is my other passion at the moment. The, why Costa Cof- Coffee Machines deserve <laughs> to take over the entire world. Is that the rise of the machines that, you know, all these films talk about? Um, I, I think it is, actually. But I, I, This is how Terminator started. It's, it probably is with, with your coffee machine. But I think, yeah. I think one of the interesting things is at, at the point where Costa, you know, you go into any service station and you've got a Costa machine in um, WH Smith, you've got a Costa machine in whatever other news agent, then you have a Costa next to it. So you end up with four different ways of getting, getting a Costa. Um, You're living the dream, Vaughn. It's, uh, it's just amazing. Well, no, I actually stand in the middle of service stations on the M1 not knowing which one to go for at that point. You know, I would like to, patronise the real people but it's the machines that are just calling to me I think we, we've hit peak partridge already uh, yeah, pretty uh, early on in this absolutely. podcast also if you can make a machine that doesn't make me make, make me scared when I'm looking at it on the instructions that's always really helpful as but well I, I it's have like actually, four buttons and it's that there, there. Um, the thing about the cost of coffee machines I discovered that it's not just me who does this do you know how to can you say bastardise <laughs> Basically, to make the machine do something that it's not supposed to do, so you basically choose different sections. So you kind of have a bit of a cappuccino, a bit of a americano. So you make the coffee the style that you want by using the different settings, and they don't charge you any more. Sorry, wow. I know. I know that I might have just so blown you your get mind. Espresso after espresso after espresso. So you can put five espressos and then put the cappuccino beginning sequence and that gives it frothy milk so it's like the strongest mind blow i'm gonna so try that if paul's listening who's the area manager for costa sorry um sorry about that uh if there's a there's a dip i don't know actually if a costa machine profits get uh, credited to the shops anyway i promise not to speak about costa coffee machines um broad opening question guys uh ruth starting with you what, what are your impressions of the fmb scene in the city right now um what's good what's bad where's it going um, okay, well, my my feelings are that it's still flourishing. I think it's been flourishing for the last few years in terms of there seems to be a lot of openings. Uh, I'm not saying that they're all great. And my overall impression is that the things that are doing particularly well are small. So you, kind of little niche restaurants like Double Zero in Chalton, uh, craft breweries, um, you know, bespoke ethnic restaurants that are very small. Uh or a suburban location restaurants. So it's either small, suburban, or stayed. And these are my kind of three keywords for what's doing well at the moment. So they have to be small because they can take risks and the overheads aren't too high. They have to be in the suburbs seemingly at the moment because the costs are lower than being in the city center. Or they have to be very stayed and not take risks, like the new 20 stories from D&D, which has moved Aidan Byrne from Manchester House to be its new head chef, which is not a risky move. And 
was an opportunity to do something really exciting that they've not taken. I'm not saying it's going to be bad. I'm just saying that, you know, there's there's chances for experimentation that aren't being taken. It's an interesting so, bit of the city that that's going to be in as well. It is actually. an interesting bit of the city, yeah. Um, so the places that are doing really well at the moment are kind of out of the city centre, the cheaper places where risks can be taken. Um, that's my gut feeling. What about you, Tom? Um, I think that's very true. I certainly think it's where, where the most interesting elements of the F&B scene are at the minute. They are amongst the indies and um, they are certainly out in the suburbs and it's, it's wonderful to see that resurgence. Um, but a lot of the big boys are, are doing well as well. You, you go to Hawksmoor on a, on a Monday, as I did this week, for a, a meeting and it was pretty much full at lunchtime. Um, I ended up grabbing a coffee in Piccolino yesterday and it was a Tuesday lunchtime in the rain in January and every single part of the restaurant, all three areas in that restaurant were full, absolutely packed to the gunnels. Um, and then you look at machines like Schloss, you know, lately uh, lauded by Jay Rayner, it's still doing 300k a week, reputedly. Were you the one that dragged him up to that? I was the Manchester friend, yes. You definitely were. <laughs> yes, yes, I admit it. It was a, it was a bit of a risk, you know, because um, it, it can polarise opinions and, uh, you know, Jay has very particular opinions, but I, I, I was he confident... He certainly seemed to like his server, didn't he? It, well, I just think you can't help but get swept up in the joy of Albert Schloss and, and it appeals to everybody. Everyone thinks they have an opinion on it and then they go in there and you end up dancing on tables or playing bongo bingo or whatever. It's just intoxicating. It's so much fun. Yeah, I took... Um, I had to take a group of... Uh, American tastemakers from a advertising agency around Manchester and I took them to Albert Schloss, The Refuge, I think those were like the two main players, we were only around for half a day um, and in Albert Schloss they just kept going, it's amazing isn't it, it's amazing. It is amazing. <laughs> and they didn't, you could see that they didn't expect to love it but I was going, no seriously, no one has a bad time here and it is, it's really great. But what I'm trying to say is it's got a lot of money behind it and it's a big kind of established thing um, I don't, it's, it's a bit risky, but essentially it's a fun formula. It's a, it's a bit risky because you could argue um, Brannigan's in the same site was similarly trying to be a hedonistic a fun, fun, formula, fun yeah. formula. What was their catchphrase on the front? Drinking, dancing, cavorting or something ridiculous like that. That's a good and, point, and they bombed spectacularly. Um, and there's, there's a lot of other people opening who on paper seem to have the same kind of uh, shtick as Schloss. Um, and I don't think they'll all make it work. I think they're really, really smart operators. And actually, after the guys kind of exited um, from Revolution, Revs de Cuba, uh, Inventive Leisure, um, and teamed up with the guys from Trough, you know, that was a bit of a risk, potentially, clash of cultures and very different ways of doing business. Um, but there was a little bit of alchemy in there. They, you know, they, they found a way to work together and maximise all of their strengths and take on a site which was seen as a dog and turn it into one of the biggest cash generators in the whole of the country, including London outlets. I think it's pretty impressive. And, uh, you know, hats off to them. They did have the money behind them, but they didn't, they didn't aim for a kind of straight-down-the-line operation. They did something different that a lot of people Still didn't think would work. a thing to do, wasn't it? Everyone said it wouldn't work in summer. You know, they said, well, it's a winter place. It's got to be an alpine thing. You know, it's cosy. You've got real fires. There's no outside space. Who's going to go there in summer? Turns out everyone goes there all summer. So, yeah, it's... Uh, but you're, you're right, Ruth. I'm not disagreeing with you. Independence... So much exciting stuff happening and the suburbs, finally, thankfully, the suburbs are really kicking into gear and not just the usual suspects in Chalton and Didsbury, which is lovely. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, th I think, uh, going, going to the point you were talking about, um, about the Brannigan site, there actually see, it still seems, certainly in the city centre, to be sites that are just totally cursed. Um, the, the Surrey site in King Street, partic particularly, and uh, there, there are a few others around the city where almost not that one on the corner, oh, I can't remember what it is now, but on the corner by um, the town hall, 
um, that has a opposite Piccolino's that has a succession of restaurants in it and never quite works. I think the um, graveyard site at the minute is um, Ithaca. We all remember Ithaca. Um, and it, at one point it had a sticker up in the window saying it was going to be the John Dalton restaurant and that, that, never, that never happened. It's, it's operationally and financially um, quite a ludicrous space to try and put a restaurant and a bar in, really, and I don't know who will ever make that work again. Um, aside from that, though, I think there's... Um, a bit of mythology around the idea that there are cursed sites. You look at San Carlo, which failed many times, several times as an Italian restaurant, and everyone said it won't work. It's 50 metres the wrong way. It's impossible. It's now one of the highest netting restaurants in the whole of the UK. Um, and if you go back 10 years, everyone would have told you that Spinning Fields was absolutely cursed. All the independents pulled out. None of the local guys would touch it. They were all approached. Um, and then yeah, Tim Bacon stuck his neck out and, you know, look at it now. And that was a big risk at the time. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's smaller ones as well, like the, the site where the Beagle is in Chilton. That had a number of places in it. And I kept thinking, why are they launching there? You know, the, the team behind Common. Um, I thought it was a huge risk. But they've just stuck at it and it survived. And also, I think if you're doing something good, it, this is the other thing about Manchester. If you're doing a really good thing like Hawksmoor is, like Schloss is, like the Beagle is you'll survive, I think. And, and I think we see people supporting quality yeah. restaurants and bars. I think that's absolutely key. Yeah. In the, in the city centre, we've seen a, a few quite high-profile closures recently. I mentioned Surrey already, but that had quite a lot of money. But at the odd chain, obviously. Um, at the other end of the scale, we've had Byron's closing, which would have been predicted for quite a while, I guess. Um, are, we, are we close to reaching peak F&B? We're going to just see a whole tale more of those closing. I have, I have loads of opinions on this. Do you want to go first, Ruth? Otherwise, <laughs> I'll get on a hobby horse and I won't shut uh, up. Well, my, my opinion, uh, I've got loads of opinions as well, but my, my, my rounding up opinion is that, no, we're not reaching peak F&B because what we're seeing is just a rapid turnover. And I think culture right now, in terms of food and drink, you see it in London, you see it all around the world, well, particularly in the kind of... Europe, basically, in America, you have uh, people are attracted to bright new things. They get really excited. They get overhyped and then they get forgotten. And so these restaurants, are they're, they're opening for a year. They're opening for six months. Like, I don't know how long Surrey was open for, but not very long. I think about five months or something. So, yeah. you know, unless they're making a massive splash, they've got restaurants don't have enough time to bed in. Um, and, you know, no one really. So, so you've got this kind of restaurants coming along. And unless they kind of capture people's attention within six months, then they're slightly I'm not saying they're all doomed, but they're slightly more doomed than they used to be, probably. Um, having said that, good places still survive, uh, no matter how small, niche or massive. So they're all all the good places are doing fine, you know, places that offer good standards, good food, good drink and good atmosphere. But it's quite hard for the mid range places, places that might need a bit more time to develop places that maybe weren't quite ready when they opened. It's hard for them to survive. I think at the moment, that's my feeling. Yeah. Um... I think for for kind of context, obviously you don't like to make light of um, of any business failure, and the, the restaurant industry is undoubtedly having a, a tough time. That's not a Manchester thing. Uh, that's definitely not to do with Manchester. That's to do with a variety of forces from uh, Brexit, skill shortages, race increases, you know, ingredient price increases, all all the rest of it. It's a very very difficult environment for them. In terms of Manchester generally, it does annoy me a little bit when people say we've hit capacity, as if it's a very finite and concrete thing. It's a constant state of flux. Manchester has changed, the population has changed, the 
wealth and affluence in the city has changed over the centuries and continues to do so. So even if at any given point there is an exact match between the number of restaurants and the number of people in the city, it will last a second and it will be gone again and there'll be another boom and another bust and another boom and another bust. So I don't actually think we're seeing anything that different and I certainly don't think we're we're at capacity. Um, the example I always throw out when people say, how do we fill all these restaurants is... Not only is Manchester exploded as a, as a tourist city, you, you look at the doubling, the tripling in the number of hotel rooms we've had over the last 10 years, the capacity rates are through the roof and none of these places have kitchens, people need to go out and eat. There's also, you might know better than me Vaughan, but 30,000, 40,000 people living in the city centre now, a population that literally wasn't there 15 years ago. And if all those millennials on decent salaries living in the city centre, no kids, they're living here because they like going out and enjoy the city, they eat out four times a week, that's another 160,000 out-of-home meal occasions, for one of a less romantic term, every single week, and those people need to go somewhere. So I don't think we've hit capacity and I, I don't think um, we're close to it. And if we're seeing more closures, it's because there's a lot more restaurants. If someone ran the analysis on percentage terms, I'm not sure it'd be much different to closure rates in the 80s or the 90s. Um, and the final thing I'll say on the subject, I told you I had a lot of opinions on it, and this is slightly flippant, but I think it's true. Even if there was a finite market and even if we've maxed out, you don't need to find new audience. You just need to be better than the worst restaurant in the market to survive so if you think you're good there's no reason why you can't pile into that market and and find an audience it's like the old joke about two guys trying to outrun a cheetah and one of them says you'll never outrun it and he says i don't need to i just need to outrun you um and that's kind of the same thing with the restaurant scene if you look around and think i'm better than these guys launch your restaurant open tell people about it and I, I actually think that you can really see that effect. You know, th this kind of like competition factor has led to amazing leaps and bounds in Manchester's food and drinks. You know, I mean, I'm sure Absolutely. everyone knows about this, but just in terms of this street food that you can get, like 10 years ago, you'd be lucky to get a burger van at an event. Now, it's just the choice is phenomenal. And I just personally, I remember going to Portland 10 years ago and being like, this will never happen. It's too, like, it's just too far away from where we are right now. And now we have something like that. Maybe even better like it's incredible so you know it shows that when you've got a fast turnaround market you can you know pushes things along as well it, it does it's about um you know people sometimes rightfully obsess over the, the the people at the top of the tree the best of the best of the best and the people who are kind of setting the benchmark but actually what makes a bigger difference to the the city is to improve the minimum if you can lift the base level or lift the middle ground that has a much greater impact on a much greater number of people than a single michelin star restaurant opening in the city um so the diner is the real winner in this you know it's a tough time to be a restaurateur absolutely but you know, my goodness, if you come to Manchester and you want to go out and eat, then it's better than it's ever been. I, I think when we're talking about um, those that have failed as well, um, I mean, it's interesting that I'm not aware that Living Ventures has, certainly not in the last 10 years, has had a failure. Um, so if, and El Gato is opening one, if not two new restaurants. If I you've got, if you've got that, that system right, and you've got staff who actually want to work for you and you've got a training system right, then you're in a much better place. Presumably, you know, at the opposite end, the Indies who are... Um, you know, a couple or, or a few people are working together who have the passion to do it, which may not sustain you for too long because you'll probably exhaust yourself. But if you have that operation and that, and that machine to um, churn through and know how you're going to generate the cash, it does help yeah. an awful lot. It's, it's sad that we have lost... Um Indies locally, people like, as you say, Odd and um, Surrey, but actually 
if you talk to people in the industry, most of the closures and most of the sites that are vulnerable are by multiple operators. Um, there are some very, very good multiple operators, but there's also a lot which have expanded too quickly, um, haven't followed through with the kind of quality of the proposition and have paid too much for rent uh, in certain locations. And actually, again, not, not in any way being um, flippant about it, but this is good for the indies because if big guys are walking away and leaving sites, that puts staff back into the market and there's a staff shortage. It puts diners back into the market, which the indies can snap up. And there's some incredible deals, actually, on some of the prime sites around the city at the minute where people like Byron are pulling out. And it means independents can get into sites. Sometimes they'll get cash up from the, from the developer or they'll be able to walk into a site and have a fully fitted kitchen with all the extraction and stuff, which costs tens, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds, all in place. If I was an indie, I'd actually be licking my lips, thinking a little bit of difficulty putting the squeeze on the big boys who've overspent. Good. Bring it on. I think there's been some interesting ones as well. I wouldn't have predicted um, three or four years ago that the owners of Great Northern, for instance, would take a risk on crazy golf bars. Um, you know, you'd think they'd be a lot more mainstream in terms of, well, never mind axe throwing. Um, yeah. So there's actually some of the bigger operators who you'd think would go definitely middle market, not bother to take a risk, who are willing to take those risks now, which I think is really interesting. It's a really good point. The Great Northern's just um, got a former street food trader called, I think it's called Platsky. It's a new Polish, yeah, Polish modern, place. Yeah, which, like you say, I think previously wouldn't have been in there. Um, so, yeah, th there's opportunities for people. I think um, one of the most interesting changes in, in dynamics really is how developers now work with the food and drink industry. There is um, a tendency, sometimes rightfully, to demonise developers um, and the effect that they have upon the city. Um, but there's a huge amount of positives as well. And I think someone probably like Mike Ingler, Allied London, was a, a bit of a pioneer in working with independence and harnessing the talent and independence um, to really bring a bit of personality and storytelling to the developments that he was involved in down in Spinning Fields and then across uh, Old Granada and St. John's as well. Um, and you look now at what Bruntwood are doing with Hatch down on um, Oxford Road, which has got some fantastic little operators in there. A nano brewery from TAC and a Mexican place, which someone may El, know the El name. March at all. I yeah, think, which, like is meant I might be, be wrong. which is meant to be pretty good. There's a couple of other operators looking at it as, as well. I know Capital and Centric are, are really in touch with the, with the Indies and you and I who are developing Mayfield are very, very keen to engage with these entrepreneurial operators because they've realised, although they need the big boys to give them the covenants to kind of fund the developments, Actually, if they're going to pull people into a new area of the city, they do need to tell stories and they do need a kind of human scale and they do need um, an individuality. And getting the right F&B operators in at day one will do that for them. Yeah, I think certainly Mayfield teaming up with um, Grub. I think Grub. it was over the yeah. summer. I thought that was a really great move because Grub have got a lot of local support and support loads of tiny traders. It's a um, hearts and minds thing, isn't it? Yeah. As much as anything else, you know, it shows that you're engaging with the city. Yeah, I mean, whether or not it's true, it makes people think that this is a place that they can go and it also makes them know where it is when that venue opens and say, for example, a live venue or an event venue, you'll go, oh, I know where that is, I've been there. So that's, exactly. that's, an, that's an added bonus. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting one with that, that experience is... Um, you have to obviously move from the crowd that will go to a beat street or a grub, wherever it is in the city, and then move on to your audience that comes every Thursday, Friday, Saturday night as well. And I think one of the things you said, Ruth, was about that. As, as we get new launches, you get the sort of the same crowd that moves around the city. And then the last trendy place is sort of bereft all of a sudden and almost has to revamp their business plan at that mm -hmm. point, which is always, always a risk, but you've got to be sustainable. Yeah, I mean, I just, like we were saying, if, if, the, if it's a quality offering, 
I think they survive, you know. But I think that's that's what people should just focus on is just doing something well. And I think that's that's true of everything in life, isn't it? So I think I think that you're right, get the quality right, the kind of history experience and, and the product, you know, the food, the drink, the setting, um, and also get your, get your finances lined up properly as well. You know, actually have a resilient business plan, make sure that you haven't paid too much on, on rent, uh, that your cash flow works out, the basics. You know, if, if operators get that right and just keep their head down and, and trade and deliver, um, send people away happy, then they can do incredible things. So in specifics, what, what have been the most interesting openings in the past few months? Well, actually, what you were just talking about, in Eat, is it called Eat New York? Eat, on, New Oldham York? Street. on Oldham yeah, Street. Yeah, they do the incredible Rubens and salt beef and bagels. Yeah, so they were a street food trader who've, who've opened in the last few months. And I've eaten a number of their different bagels now. But they're just doing bagels. <laughs> in the name of research. In the name of research. Really good ones. <laughs> you know, you could get uh, go in and get an opening night offer or whatever. But essentially, they're quite expensive, but they're absolutely brilliant. So, yeah, they're doing really well. All my friends are talking about them. Everyone's going to eat them. Maybe the next big thing will come along and we won't be quite so excited. But I can't see why there's not room for an excellent, genuine bagel shop, in, in particularly in the Northern Quarter. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's one that I'm particularly happy with at the moment. I, th- I think um, that's an interesting point as well. One of um, everyone, everyone likes to see something done incredibly well. You know, do one thing and do it brilliantly. And kind of single menu, single item menus and uh, restaurants which specialise have been a big thing in London for a number of years now. And we're seeing that kind of come up to Manchester as well. Um, so places like Rudy's Pizza, they're not trying to do a million different things. They're not even trying to be an Italian restaurant. You might be able to get a salad or a little bowl of crisps but really you go to Rudy's and you eat a pizza uh, you go to Eat New York if we've decided that's what it's called we think that's what it's called I think it's definitely called um, something like that and, and you eat a fantastic bagel um, and I'd rather see a hundred places in the city each which do one thing phenomenally well rather than these big kind of catch-all generalist places they, they really don't excite me yeah, there was one that opened in London a while ago that caught my attention. It was a yogurt bar. It was just they made that their own yogurt. Niche. And I was like, wow, that's so specific. Could that survive here? I do like yogurt, though. Me too. But actually, I, I wonder how the poke bar did. You know, there's a poke. Is it called poke? Just a, yeah, Am just around the corner. It is poke. Yeah. Yes. Is um, it called hokey pokey or something? Uh, they that's all one have... of those came, come up with a name in the middle of the night and then yeah. try and work out what food you're going to serve as a result. <laughs> yeah. So I, we, I, I met them before they opened, actually. And they're not from Hawaii and there wasn't any particular link. They just like, they were like, it's really healthy and nice and I was like okay good luck with that I was thinking I don't know if there's enough of a market for it so I'd be interested to know how they're doing I think it's doing okay I've been yeah. in a couple of times it's pretty good really you so, know it's uh, food well, that I like to Tim eat Tim Hortons in the city I'm waiting for a chain of poutine bars to open as well <laughs> that would that would be the next poutine thing would be really really nice yeah but possibly only only during the winter um have there been any huge disappointments um, I, can I just say one other one other thing that I was quite happy with? Oh, okay. Which is, which is, yeah, just be positive. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I really like Mason's, actually. Mason's, I went there the other night. It's doing what I would call old-school Manchester fancy dining, you know, really kind of elaborate presentation on the plate, very Aidan Byrne. What did you say on your Instagram about the decor? At the decor. It's, it's, it's very um, 1920s <laughs> gentleman's club, isn't it? Yeah, very, very lavish. Um, there's kind of fake flowers done, everywhere. Done by No Chintz, I believe, who I'm interviewing Dom tomorrow for oh, yeah. a future podcast, podcast so I will ask him about it. yeah I'm, I'm a big fan of theirs actually so yeah it's a, the interior is absolutely stunning the menu is yeah it's kind of like fancy venison but the most exciting thing for me so the food's all great it's, it's not totally off the scale and it's not that exciting it's presented in a kind of slightly cliched fine dining way but it's an enjoyable experience and it's busy and it feels like you're in a kind of yeah just a fancy place with fancy people it's really nice but then they have a martini trolley and i've not seen this anywhere else i don't know if you've heard about this 
I but have they, one at home. You have Don't one at home you? with Doesn't two, two giant globes on it. And no, but I would love yeah. one. That sounds fantastic. It's fabulous. And it just adds a kind of like a little flair to the experience. And I was like, you know what? Why shouldn't Manchester have its own kind of type of fine dining that's, you know, okay, maybe it's not going to compete in the capital, but it's it's nice. It's a fun night out and it's got a great drinks trolley um, and everyone serves you and they're all really friendly. And I don't know, I really enjoyed it. Totally, it, totally in favour of martinis yeah. being delivered, as, as Tom knows. Uh, yeah. I had a bit I, of a tiff with Michael O'Hare about <laughs> the lack of martinis at his Leeds restaurant. I think also for me that, that ticks the box. Um, another of my bugbears or hobby horses or any other um, description is a la carte dining. I'm, I, I do like tasting menus and if you if you find a chef who is phenomenal and they express themselves through a very complicated tasting menu it's a wonderful thing but I actually really like ordering a starter and a main course and a dessert and having them come in the right order and having a big portion of the thing that I really want in the middle of the meal it just makes a lot of sense and I find myself more and more now drawn back to places which do a la carte dining yeah it, this, it, it exactly does that and the portions are big and it's just I don't know, I really liked it. It's, it's not going to blow your mind, but it's, an, it's some kind of place you can go with your mum, your lover, your child when he's graduating. It's, it's got a nice, a nice vibe. So, yeah. Again, it's in a slightly strange place. Um, <laughs> but I suppose, and also surrounded by so many of those Spinning Fields restaurants as well, which is going to be an interesting challenge it's, for um, it. It's got Deschum opening up next door, though, and you know I think that must be one of the most eagerly awaited restaurants of, of the year. So I think that development Manchester Hall um, as it's called the old Freemasons Hall on Bridge Street is going to be a bit of a draw in its own right and I think there's a couple of other places opening there Honest Burger are opening there um, and maybe one other indie I think is going in so it's it's going to get a name for itself as a bit of a destination I do wonder if we can cope with any more burger restaurants but that's been an ongoing debate we've been saying it for five years it's like <laughs> claiming that Bitcoin is a, is a bubble five years ago it's probably not right I think um, going back to the negatives then any huge disappointments or even just slightly. I I went to Rock and Rye before Christmas. Um, now I don't know how it's changed, but it was very very quiet. I thought they would. It looked good. It it had an interesting menu. The cocktails were ambitious. No one was in it. I don't know what was going on there. It had no atmosphere. There wasn't any customers. Um, have you what been? What time? What time did you go? At about ten thirty. I think it. Um... I've been in a couple of times. I've been once late on and it, and it was quiet. Um, but I've been in, apparently after work, it gets really, really busy. Well, that's great. Um, but I, I don't know whether it's yet established itself as a, as a kind of night, late night destination. Because it is open late, isn't it? That is part of the, part of the so. shtick. Yeah. It feels like it should be. Yeah, it's that yeah. sort of place. Yeah, it definitely is, yeah. Was it, was it the normal Northern Quarter crowd or was it an older crowd? No, it's very different there. It's, um, it's to, to coin the, the phrase, it's the square half mile crowd. It is that professional services audience from the offices mm-hmm. around there, top of King Street, Spring Gardens. Um, it's their local place, you know, it's just a nice glass of wine, good cocktails, you finish work, you want to go out for drinks, it's right there. You don't have to walk in our glorious Manchester rain. And that seems to be when it's busiest at the minute. But, you know, whether that's enough for them, whether that matches their business plan, I don't know. Yeah, I was hoping it was going to survive, basically, because I thought they, what, they, what they were kind of opened with was good. But yeah. I couldn't quite understand why it didn't seem to be getting any coverage or, or getting any custom. So if it's taking off, that's great. Tom, anything you'd, you'd have liked to have seen improved? I know you're quite close to the operators, so it's always a bit difficult for you. I'm, I'm quite, uh, yeah, <coughs> close to the operators, so I, I don't want to ev- eviscerate anyone on the internet. And um, to be honest, I'm so... OCD and geeky about these things that I don't tend to have many miserable restaurant experiences just because I really carefully pick where I go. Life is too short to eat 
in mediocre places. Um, so I actually can't remember the last time I, I went into somewhere in Manchester and, and came out disappointed. Um, I suppose maybe what I've noticed over the last 12 months or certainly the last six months is... I'm struggling to think of anywhere that's got onto my regular cycle of places that I go to. I have my little favourite places that I like to go back to and I can reel them off the top of my head, whether it's, uh, whether it's Rudy's or The Refuge or Hawksmoor or Yuzu or Umizushi or Siam Smiles or Bundabust. I have my places to go. I'm trying to think of the last place that's kind of barged its way into that list and become one of my regular, I end up going there two, three times a month. Probably, actually thinking about it, Mackie Mare. That's the one. Um, I find myself going back there a lot, including on Monday night, embarrassingly, and it wasn't open, and I dragged someone halfway across the city to show it to them. Yeah, so that was I've brilliant. Yeah, on a Monday night as well. Um, yeah, I think Mackie Mare has probably been my, my greatest disappointment, but I think I probably misled myself on that one. And thinking, as I have a flat that's within about 30 seconds walk of it, hoping that it would actually do fresh food and would be as much of the borough market and the, the American farmer's market as um, a, a lot of... Food, hot food providers um, and I think uh, when you've got a lot of there aren't to my knowledge that many operators who were small operators within the city there are either people who have been brought in from the Stockport operation which sort of Altrincham. that's great Altrincham, sorry yeah, yeah. Um, that so it's all south to me um, that that almost doesn't seem to be playing the game quite because I think the purpose of it is actually to support small producers and small, small makers around here um, or they actually got venues very close by where they charge somewhat less for exactly the same product. Yeah. Without getting into too much trouble. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that the pricing is quite high. Ambitious. Yeah, ambitious. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think that I think that's a that's a classic. It, was, it will be interesting to see what Mackie is doing in six months' time, because certainly the first couple of nights, and I can't remember whether I went with, went with you, Tom. Um, the first couple of nights. You couldn't sit down, went to bakery, which I always quite like for their beef stew, it's quite nice, absolutely empty. And you just got the impression that that was that crowd that had gone on to the Mackie Mayor and then there'll be somewhere else that they move on to afterwards. Do you know what? It's, um, it's interesting because I've had a couple of discussions recently about the crowd in, um, in Mackie Mayor and what, what I noticed, the last time I was in there, I was trying to remember when it was, might have been a midweek evening, um, but the crowd was... A lot older. I, I mean, not only my age old, but even older, older people in their fifties as well. You know, your age, yeah. I mean, imagine um, lots of people in uh, in blazers and nice shoes, all looking very, very respectable. And it felt like a really suburban kind of Altrincham older audience who if you'd said to them 18 months ago you're going to be hanging around basically on swan street at the far end of the northern quarter would have thought you were absolutely nuts there is no way looking around those audiences that they are regulars in the northern quarter you know they're not normally propping up common or wherever it might be these are people who've come to go to Mackie Mare. Um, and I think this goes back to the idea of different audiences within the cities. I think what Mackie Mare has done brilliantly and what will sustain it is it's become a destination. If I had someone from out of town coming to Manchester and I had to tell them five places to go to eat and drink that I knew would blow them away, Mackie Mare would be top of my list. And I'm sure it's top of um, Visit Manchester's list when they want to show journalists around or give a good impression of the city. And I think that, that visitor economy is really important. You look at somewhere like London, you know, probably 89% of the business in the restaurants is either business or leisure tourism, whether it's overnight or day tourism or whatever. Um, and we're still in the early stages of that in Manchester, but the places which either through marketing or offering can position themselves to hoover up that visitor economy are really going to smash it over the next five or ten years. 
It's also possibly true that that the Mackie and the Altrincham market that they are working as a, a kind of like draw for people from different parts of the city. Absolutely. For example, like I'd never gone out in Altrincham before, but I've made a trip to Altrincham market many times. Because it's a destination. Because it's great. Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe you're getting a reverse flow of people from the suburbs coming to the city centre where they might normally go. Let's go local now. They're like, let's go there because we exactly feel comfortable it. with it. So yeah, interior moving around as well. <laughs> As opposed to international. Yes, no, absolutely. I, th I think the first thing I saw for sale when I went into the Mackie Mare was broccoli pizza, um, which is just possibly the worst single idea ever. So was you it? never want to go back? Uh, no, no, I looked at it and went... Just, I've, I've uh, actually had a broccoli yeah. pizza. From, it, what's it like? I had it from Slice when I was pregnant a few years ago, and I never went back to Slice. I, I actually would love to go back to Slice, but I was so put off. I didn't realise broccoli was so bad on a pizza, but yeah, it's, it's not my broccoli, thing. Broccoli, one of the most lovely vegetables, pizza, one of the most lovely foods. Together, together. No. no, just not something that you want to talk about. Um, we have to mention uh, Monsieur Michelin uh, or Madame Michelin, actually. Um, again, we failed to register a star. Is is there any point us worrying about it? Should we not care? Again, I've got a bit of um, a hobby horse about this. I think there's a, a natural Mancunian reaction, knee-jerk reaction to go. We don't, we don't need a French tyre company to tell us whether or not we have any good restaurants. Um, and that's absolutely true. If the French, to name but one, has a Michelin star today or tomorrow, it doesn't change the meal that I go and have there. I still have a phenomenal meal because Adam's an incredible chef. Um, but it does matter in terms of tourism. It does matter in terms of bringing audiences into the city that benefit everyone. And I think it matters in terms of talent and skills development as well. You know, if people are thinking about... Um, hospitality as a career and god knows we need more and more people to think about hospitality as a career you want them to see the best of the best of the best you want people growing up in manchester and going to local catering colleges at trafford or wherever to have a star name to have a michelin star to have someone who's seen as being at the top of their profession to aspire aspire to and to inspire them um and i think that's I think that's really important, and it's important to have that in Manchester. I think that we should have people who are noted as being at the top of their game, and it does feed back. Um, trickle down is a terrible phrase to use, but that that virtue at the top of the tree, it does influence the whole industry, and it will attract better chefs and more chefs. It enables uh, not only the Midland to attract more talent, having that Michelin star badge on the door, but if one Michelin star restaurant is in Manchester... And there might be another Michelin star chef or someone with the talent to be one looking to relocate back north from London. He'll look at Manchester and go, do you know what? It can sustain a Michelin star restaurant. I might open my place up there. Um, and that's what happened in Ludlow. That's what happened in Birmingham. You get clustering. And I think if we get one star, we could easily have two or three. I, I, was, ex I was just going to say, once you've got one, you see chefs and the, the second chef in command and so on bouncing around. So you look at Absolutely. like Gilpin Lodge, the Samling. I'm not sure if the Samling's still got one, but, you know, in the Lake District, for example, there's a whole clutch of places which have then spawned that the deputy chef's left and started his own restaurant. So you've got the top tier where they've all got, well, if you want to call it that, you've got a tier of Michelin starred restaurants. Then you've got an unbelievably high quality tier that's, that's exactly not it. necessarily starred but the, the standards are all so high yeah. because the thing is you know chefs a lot of chefs do care about michelin stars and 
if you were going to if you were going to move for a job and you wanted to be in a Michelin star restaurant and you know you, you would you come to Manchester? I don't know. Maybe you wouldn't. And also, if there's only one place with a star here, you come and you think, well, what if I move my whole family to Manchester? It doesn't work out. You know, I don't enjoy it at that restaurant. Where else am I going to go? Am I going to have to move city again? It would be lovely to have two or three Michelin star restaurants because then you do start to attract that talent and they will move around the kitchens, um, as Ruth says. It is about clustering. We all talk about tech and you know all these all these industries which are, are going to drive forward Manchester's economy, and we all talk about the importance of media clusters and all the rest of it. Food and drink is exactly the same, and to have the seal of approval, the kind of Oscar of the restaurant world, does make a massive difference. How much we like to pretend it doesn't. I, I would agree with everything you've said. I, I would just put forward like a, an alternative viewpoint, if we've got time, is that basically. Michelin star could be described as increasingly irrelevant in an area where food, the kind of food that we're eating is diversifying. And what we regard as good food and fine food now incorporates street food, um, burgers, you know, all of these things. Like there's, there's restaurants that I went to or, or went past in America where they do 10 of the best burgers ever a day. You know, people queue for hours to get this. You know, so the, our ideas of fine dining are no longer tied to what Michelin touts as a fine dining meal. So you could say it's not that relevant. So fine dining is just another, you know, fine Michelin dining is just another style, not the style, if you see what I mean. Having, yeah, so, but yeah, so, uh, so I have a love-hate relationship with the idea of Michelin because I don't necessarily, we were saying this, I don't necessarily want to eat like that all the time. And I know it has a time and a place, but I'm happy that, food's diversified yeah. and I think it's yeah. positive as well so yeah I, I think you don't want the tail wagging the dog and, and Michelin is not necessarily always about absolute quality it's about quite a particular style of dining yeah, I think you, when you talk about Birmingham it's got four Michelin style uh, they've restaurants. just lost one so four yeah, but those are pretty cookie cutter yeah and this is where, what I expect style. to a Michelin style yeah. where and, is, and, I, and I think what's quite interesting is I mean Michelin has talked a lot over the last five eight years about you can get a Michelin star in whatever area you are working in. Well, you, you, look, at, should get a, you, you yeah. look at somewhere in London um, like Barrafina, which has a Michelin star. It's phenomenal. It's a million miles from what you would have said was a traditional Michelin star experience, as is A Wong, which is probably one of the best uh, Chinese restaurants that I've ever eaten in. Um, but I, I have to put on record that I, I find Michelin in some ways no sort of guide to quality I, i've you know eaten partly for professional reasons in one two and three star restaurants and i've eaten in some which are pretty appalling to be honest and and the variety in quality is is just massive the idea that it gives you any real certainty i don't agree with but what you can't deny is that if manchester landed a michelin star it would be an enormous press story far far beyond manchester right through the foodie press and the twitterati and that restaurant would be packed to the gunnels for about the next six months and that's a good thing for the city um yeah i i can i can see where you're coming from i mean i think i've, I've been following michelin the michelin inspectors on instagram recently um just is it as is it as good as their twitter feed well because th the thing is people do make horrible comments on it it's quite funny um but so i was following it just to see what style of dishes they were promoting and people like give really negative feedback it's quite funny but um it is a lot of it is very what you'd think of as classic fine dining because I was hoping for more diversity and I was hoping to kind of go well here's a, you know a dish in Israel that's I've never seen before a dish from Argentina you know I was really hoping to see some inspiration but I basically so far not that much inspo so yeah um 
correct? Yeah, I also wonder how much. I mean, in Birmingham, there was actually a definite push by the city authorities to bring in Michelin-style restaurants. It was, it was seen as a thing to do. It's never been particularly high up the priorities here. Um, whether that will change with changes in, in regime, it will, it will be interesting to see. I know, I know, I think I've told you this story before, but one of my most embarrassing moments in Manchester was when we were running the Modern, um, oh, yes. and we hosted uh, a delegation from Lyon. And of course, everybody had to speak English, because none of us spoke French, which was dreadful in itself. Um, and the chief exec of one of the inward investment authorities at the time turned to the um, mayor of Lyon and said, so have you got any good restaurants in Lyon? And, and I was like, inwardly... That says quite a lot about Manchester's attitude towards the rest of the world and, and to, where, to where things are in the world. But also, have they got a Costa Coffee machine? I, I bet they have actually. Um, I, I was Costa's, there the other week Costa's and I didn't the, see one. Costa's one of the fastest growing companies in China. I'll have you know. Wow, <laughs> you are Costa, full of Costa facts, aren't yeah. you? I, I adore that company. I think that company, yeah. <laughs> um, especially now they're doing, they're going out of their way to bring ex-Rust sleepers into the into their uh, business, which I think is a really good thing to do. Uh, enough advertising for Costa. Um, we did an event yesterday, uh, City Code did an event that was around skills, and, and, and that's been mentioned quite a lot. One of the things that Jeremy Roberts, um, Chief Executive of Living Ventures, said was, please don't make it about Brexit, uh, because the problem with getting skilled people is already here. Absolutely. It may, may get worse uh, post-Brexit. And I think that's one of the things that maybe challenges us with the Michelin star thing, is, is getting that quality of... Um, Front of house, particularly yeah. um, through. I mean, I've you know, I, th I think when we met at Rabbit and the Moon, one of the actually the nicest things about it was the quality of staff was really yeah. good. It was relaxed and very yeah. mank, but it was also caring and, and you know, it, it, it was wasn't quite way polished. over the top. It, it was, was, it was, it was efficient. They, they knew their system and they knew their system very well. Um, and I, I and I think that is going to be as we have more and more venues open and more and more people, more and more people coming, and Brexit happens. That is going to be such a big issue for us when you when you've already got chefs that can sort of leave a restaurant, yeah. put the finger up to the boss, and then walk next door and get fifty percent more just for, you know, walking in the door. Basically, that is a really yeah. I, I mean, really, the the responsibility um, falls solely on the operators. Really, unfortunately, and you could say unfairly, um, there's no way with the explosion in the size of the restaurant scene, the restaurant bar scene over the last ten fifteen years, that um, traditional academia. Uh, and educational establishments can keep up with that. They can't suddenly multiply by 10 the amount of qualified students that they pump out of MMU's hospitality department or, or as I say, Trafford College. Um, so training becomes very important, but to be honest, it's, it's retention, which is the really, really important thing. And a lot of the more forward-thinking restaurants and operators, perfect example at the minute is Alchemist, really look at how they treat their staff, how they care for their staff. Um, so some of this is a little bit mythical, but the idea that it's environments in hospitality are very macho or can be quite bullying or quite aggressive, that you're expected to do ridiculous hours, 70, 80 hour weeks, um, that you're forced to work endless split shifts, which kind of decimate your any sort of home life you might want to have. All of that is starting to change and it needs to change because ultimately if someone can go and have a better career progression and earn more money working as a, as a trainee at Aldi or something like that or in retail rather than in a restaurant working till two in the morning and doing 70 hour weeks, they, they're going to choose that. So the hospitality industry needs to make sure that it's creating career paths and an environment that talented people really want to stay in. Yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you've said. I mean, I just wonder, like, the, the, whether the wages are a factor, you know, whether people might have to be paid more to retain them. And Because I used to work in the, in, as a waitress and as a, in, in many different bars, and the pay wasn't good then. I assume it's similarly minimum wage level now. Um, 
and it's you know it's, it's hard to see a reason to stick that out as a, as your lifelong career um, unless you're offered you know like like you say reward packages and training and so on and so forth which is really expensive for the operators so I, think, I, I don't um, know what will happen next yeah I mean obviously um, the minimum wage is is increasing and and you're right pay is um, part of it one of the things I don't think people realize is because of the shortage if you do get a job start working in a bar um whether you're a waiter waitress whatever if you're good and you work hard and you're reliable and you're with a good operator you'll find that you're moved into management roles quite quickly uh, because there is a lack of talent and anyone who shows the aptitude and, and the appetite will get pushed up through those ranks and i know that to to be a kind of a general manager of a decent-sized restaurant or, or bar in Manchester, something down on Spinning Fields, you're looking at probably getting 40k, 50k for that role. And people in their late 20s can have got the experience easily to pick up that sort of role. And there aren't many industries where you can walk into 40, 50 grand jobs before you've hit 30. So, you know, if you find the right operator and, it, and they're kind of valuing you and looking after you and rewarding you, it can be a fantastic career. Yeah, and it is something of a seller's market. That's one of the issues Absolutely. with having so many restaurants. Yeah, that is exciting, I think. Finally, because we've overrun a little bit. Um, it's all those hobby horses, Tom. Oh, I know. Uh, what are you looking forward to in the rest of the year, Ruth? Uh, um... I'm looking forward to Dishoom, which I really like. Oh, yes. Um, I, I, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think of other more independent places, because obviously Dishoom's part of a big London group. I've, I've um, got a couple. So, yeah, basically, the ones that, I, that, that sprang to mind was basically the, the proliferation of independence around Ancoats. So I'm looking forward to Pollen opening there. There's Sugo. Uh, Sugo. Is Sugo going to Ancoats? In Ancoats, yeah. Okay, yeah. so Sugo. The second site. Uh, that's going to be great because I've still never made it to Sugo. Um, so whatever's happening in Ancoats, I'm going to be checking that out. And I'm also looking forward to, I had a tour of their uh, D&D 20 Stories site. I'm ambivalent about their choice of head chef, which is a bit contentious but I think this, this the setting is absolutely incredible these huge glass walls all around the top they've devoted something like 50% of the, the floor space to being outdoors completely outdoors with no shade um, and no like just walls of glass around you to protect you from the elements which is risky but could really pay off I don't know I'm, I'm looking forward to going up there and enjoying the view a bet on global warming I think. it's a good bet on global warming <laughs> It'll either, well, it'll either sink or swim or just be, yeah, basically be a swimming pool. <laughs> it's interesting they've got a very good team behind them, even down at the marketing team and the business development team are all people who both know the city well um, and have worked really well in their previous restaurants. So it's, it's not one of those where they, they get the chef and they get the front of house manager and then everybody else is just recruited, not quite from the job centre, but, um, you know, they've, they've gone out and they've headhunted some really good people all through the operation, which is the way they've, they've been so successful in the past, I guess. Yeah, I've met some of them and I, I, I've met some of them before in other positions. So I, I was... I was happy with who they chose and I thought it showed a bit like Hawksmoor a kind of when Hawksmoor launched here I think they they kind of tried to connect at a grassroots level with people who are already here and to kind of work with the city rather than just going here's a new thing for you to, yeah, to enjoy absolutely. from London um, and I feel like the India are definitely doing that actually so fingers crossed um, it's going to work I think um, what Ruth said about Ancoats is, is absolutely 
true. Um, it, it's pulling in a number of... We need to do a podcast on ANCOS. We need to actually. do an ANCOS That's podcast. Us. I think what's interesting is that it's, <clears throat> it's pulling in not just good operators, there's some really nice operators there, people like Elnacart and uh, Seven Brothers, but absolute best-in-class operators. Rudy's is arguably the best pizza you're going to have in town. Pollen is arguably the best bread you're going to buy. Sugo's moving in there. You're probably not going to get better pasta anywhere in Greater Manchester. So... To use the word again, it's a, it's a real kind of cluster of brilliance, and I, I think that's a really exciting thing for the city. I'm particularly happy to see Sugo come into town because Altrincham, even on the tram, is a long way to go for pasta, and I don't get there as often as uh, as I'd like. And on a similar note, I absolutely adore Hispy. Um, and Gary has been his normal tease of a, of a self on social media, and it seems that he's looking at a site in central Manchester. And if he could bring Hisby's cooking to Manchester, I, I would be through his doors on a weekly basis. That would just be wonderful. Uh, we've also forgotten the creameries. Mary <gasps> Ellen's creameries. Project. Mary so, Ellen. Yeah, I've been working with Mary Ellen and uh, Isabel Jenkins at Manchester Art Gallery uh, in the cafe just doing some marketing. And just getting to know them and their concept and how Mary Ellen cooks is so inspiring. I mean, I know she's been around for a long time, but she's devoted to her craft. And um, I, I'm just really looking forward to seeing how she gets on when she teams up with um, uh, a new pastry chef, who, who I also really respect, whose name escapes me for one second. But um, yeah, I, th I think it's got potential to be a really exciting project. And Chilton just doesn't have that many thrilling, fun, quality places to go. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. If I can make a plea, I'd like um, the guys, Joe and Fiona, behind Barachuri and Levanta to please open in the city centre as well, because Ramsbottom is a really long way away. And I say that as someone who lives in Glossop. Agreed. <laughs> and, and as you were personally, well, you weren't personally responsible for bringing El Gato in from a typically out-of-the-way place. But Yes. Yeah, um, we got that, that from that's worked very well, though. It, it has. I'll, I'll see if I can repeat the trick. Are they also moving to Ancodes? They are uh, opening an operation in Ancos, yeah. Um, it won't be an El Gato, I don't think. It will be something interesting. Any like more? new. Any no, more I, I couldn't possibly reveal, but it's quite Please. exciting. They've got two sites that they're, they're opening, actually. They've got two sites, yeah. which I think has been announced, but yeah. when they're going to be in them. Oh. Uh, it was quite interesting when they said. Interesting things. Definitely. Um, thanks to our friends, to our guests, to our lovely friends at West Corner for hosting us, uh, and to Sudafed for keeping me going, and to the boys at Salford's Blueprint Studios for editing the final track. If you have any comments or ideas for things to cover in the future, you can talk to us on Twitter at CottonmouthMCR. We're available on all good podcast services. Give us a review if you have a moment.